Discord. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Upland Lives. My name is Mike Rain, author of Nature Snowdonia, and I uh, produce Notes from the Hill and, and this Upland Lives series. A series of conversations with uh, a range of people of an interest in the uplands, um, that, that place that we all share high in the mountains. Um, my guest this week is Graham Mooney. Graham is a lifelong hill walker, actually, and this has led to feats like a continuous crossing of the Hewitts in Wales. Um, most loads of Munros, over 300 Scottish Munros and Corbett's. Um, he's the author of the lovely, recently published and best-selling so far, Walking the Wainwrights from the Pesda Press. But Graham's written lots of other books, uh, lots of guidebooks, uh, a series called Backpackers Britain, uh, guidebooks as diverse as Cornwall to Shetland. Um, not only that, he's an ornithologist, He's a jog photographer, he's a horticulturalist, ecological surveyor, and he's a counter of birds. Former employee of the RSPB, former health Velin Felltop Assessor, a mountain rescue volunteer, Graham now runs Graham Mooney Mountaineering, providing a range of courses for hill walkers and climbers. He's lived in Wales, he's lived in Scotland, but he's speaking to me today from the Lake District. So good morning, Graham. How are you today? Morning, Mike. Yep, I'm very well, thank you. Um, yeah, just finding it hard to sit and, and talk to you, dare I say, um, mainly because I want to be outside on a hill, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're, as we're recording this, there, there is some nice, it is quite pretty outside and snowy, so I'm really grateful to Graham for taking the time to, to chat to us today. Um, so, Graham, you run Graham Mooney Mountaineering today. That offers a range of courses for climbers and hill walkers uh, and mountain training courses, MLs, that sort of thing. But you haven't always done that, have you? How, 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 have, how do you come to be doing that now? It's, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Tell us, first of all, how you go into the outdoors, how you became a walker and climber. Um, I've kind of, I've done it since I was a kid, really, Mike. So I started sort of exploring the Yorkshire Dales was really my the first place that I, I was let loose in the hills um, and when I, when I was a kid as a, as a family we kind of had family holidays there was sort of two two destinations that I remember going to regularly you know we, we went to the Norfolk Broads quite regularly and we'd hire a cottage overlooking one of the rivers and with a day boat and we'd go out and kind of explore in the day boat and I remember those days with with fondness, um, but we also used to go to the Yorkshire Dales. We had um, a contact who had a farm in Littendale, just off Wharfdale, and we used to go there for you know a week or two of our summer holidays every year. And I remember my older brothers, you know, going off hill walking from Halton Gill in Littendale, where the farm was, and you know we'd go up onto Horsehead Moor or up onto Plover Hill or Penny Ghent, uh, Fountains Fell, just all surrounding Halton Gill there. And, you know, obviously back then I had no idea that this was ever going to become a career. I think I was sort of seven or eight years old when I climbed my first fell, you know. Um, but that, that's probably what started it, really, you know, just getting out with, with my brothers and spending time at Halton Gill in the summer. Um, were and you, then, you know, sorry, go on. Were you warned off it as a career at school? Did, did you ever ask, oh, I want to make this my job? Did they say, oh, no, you can't do that, so... Uh, it wasn't even on my radar as a, as a career option, to be honest. I had no idea. You know, I was born and brought up in Hull, you know, the flatlands of East Yorkshire. Um, I had no idea that you could be a mountaineering instructor for a living. Um, so it wasn't something that was on my radar at all. 
at school, I remember my um, careers advice officer, you know, basically he advised me to um, go to college and become a bricklayer and chatting to my mates from school. They'd all been advised to go to college and become a bricklayer as well. So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, there, there, was, there was certainly no help from, from that quarter, really. You know. My career's advice was not dissimilar. Uh, I said I was into the outdoors, so they said you must join the army. But uh, the drawback with that was the guns bit. Um, and you weren't playing rugby league, come from Hull. That must dominate life yeah. as a child. So yeah. what was your first job then? How did you get, get working? Yeah, so... Um, I knew I wanted to work in the outdoors, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. Um, and I think probably those sort of early family holidays at the farm in, in Holton Gill um, made me want to think about maybe becoming a farmer. But I wasn't from a farming background and I had no idea how to go about it. So just outside of Hull, there's an agricultural college at Bishop Burton. Um, so I went to an open evening at Bishop Burton. Um, really just to see if I thought it was possible that I could study agriculture in, in one form or another, you know. And during that um, open evening, I got chatting to a guy who was the head of horticulture at the college. And he made me realise that actually that was a more viable proposition, really, was studying horticulture. It would get me outside, because even at that stage, I had no idea that I could make a living from working in the mountains, you know. Um, and I thought, yeah, OK, actually, maybe studying horticulture um, and then working in, in gardens is for me. And, you know, I did that for a number of years and, and, and enjoyed it to a certain extent. You know. Still do a bit of gardening? Sorry, Mike, what was that? Still do some gardening? Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I've worked all over the place after leaving college. I, I worked as assistant head gardener at a, a big hall um, in Hull. And then various places around the country um, ended up at the, as a head gardener at a large estate in Suffolk. Uh, worked there for a number of years um, and then got to the point where I just hated it because I wanted to be in the mountains. Oh, the mountains <laughs> grew and grew, did they? But parallel to the mountains, before going to the mountains, was the birds as well, wasn't it? You, you were watching birds, presumably, at this time too. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't really know where that started. Um, I'm probably going back again to those early family holidays in the Yorkshire Dales. You know, I remember seeing dippers on the rivers and not really knowing what they were, but getting a, a field guide out and, um, you know, working it out. And even, even robins. I mean, I remember robins on my bedroom windowsill one morning as a kid and not knowing what it was um, and asking one of my older brothers, I think it was Dave, my older brother, um, and he I thought he was being unhelpful, but he told me he wasn't going to tell me. He gave me a field guide to, to work it out for myself. And actually, it was, you know, he was doing the right thing. He encouraged me to, to find out rather than just telling me. Um, so I, I don't know if that's, that's where all that started. But I've, I've always been interested in not just birds, you know, in, in natural history in general, really. Yeah. yeah. So, so was removed to the RSPB then? Uh, that came later, really. So I worked for the RSPB after I'd qualified as a mountain leader and, and winter mountain leader. Um, yeah, so I, I sort of came into that quite late. And initially I got a job with the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology. Mm -hmm. um, so the BTO Scotland were looking for surveyors to work in Dumfries and Galloway um, on hen harrier and short-eared owl surveys. And I saw this job advertised and I thought, well, I've got an interest in birds, but I'm not 
I'm not an academic, you know, I'm not an ornithologist by trade, never worked for a conservation charity at all. Um, but one of the things that I noticed in their job description was it said that they were, they were particularly keen on people who could look after themselves in the mountains. Um, you know, big part of the job was being out on pretty wild parts of Dumfries and Galloway um, in all weathers, looking for hen harrier nests and, and shorted owl nests and monitoring their behaviour. So I applied for that job. Um, you know, I, I still remember the, the sort of the interview process at the BTO's offices in Stirling, um, you know, involved a, a walk up onto the hill above Stirling University with one of their guys, John Calladine. And, and John basically just said, you know, we're going to go for a walk. And while we're out, I want you to name every bird that you can identify, whether that's by sound or by sight or, or even just being in the right habitat and what you might expect to see here. And, you know, that was really daunting. You're like going out on the hill with a very, very experienced ornithologist. Um, and, you know, he was obviously suitably impressed. I remember another part of the interview process was they gave me a little navigation challenge um, and it, it was based on Craig Meggie up in the Highlands. And it was, you know, imagine you're surveying up here and, and the weather turns and how are you going to get down from here? And of course, well, by that stage, I knew Craig Meggie quite well. So I just came up with a quick plan and they were like, wow, have you been up here before? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been at Craig Meggie before. <laughs> you know, so I kind of I kind of just eased into that work, really. Um, worked for the BTO for one summer season, just on that one survey. And then the following spring saw roles advertised with the RSPB. So started applying for those and all of the RSPB work I did after that was very much uh, short term contracts um, and it, it was working in the field for the RSPB's conservation science department, you know, so worked on various surveys um, and then through the RSPB work, uh, they encouraged me to qualify as a bird ringer. Um, so, you know, I became a bird ringer and started monitoring bird nests and ringing chicks on the nest bringing pulley um, and then misnetting to um, trap birds to you know monitor their their survival rates and their production rates and all the rest of it afterwards so one thing kind of led to another these things snowballed don't they Mike <laughs> really because uh, you did that in some interesting places as well didn't you in some far-flung corners of the Hebrides and things yeah I mean a lot of that sort of I've, I've lived all over to be honest um Actually, when I was working for the RSPB, I lived in Cambridgeshire. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so I actually worked for the RSPB at their farm. Um, so the RSPB bought a farm um, at Knapwell in Cambridgeshire. And it's not a it's not a nature reserve. It's it's a farm, you know, and they wanted to look at ways that uh, farmers could put measures in place to improve, um, you know, the natural environment on farms for for bird life essentially but without making drastic measures in the way that they were actually farming the landscape um, and obviously part of that work is you need to know what's on the farm when you buy it and you need to monitor how numbers of, of key species increase um, and that, that was my role you know I did that for a little while and I, I lived in the flatlands of Cambridgeshire um, yeah, so I have lived all over the place. And that sounds like, is that the early days of what we'd now call nature-friendly farming? Is that, was that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the measures that we were sort of looking at, I, you know, I was primarily involved in um, species monitoring um, in terms of 
you know, looking at the measures that we could put into place. And a lot of them are less simple things, you know, like um, your average farm. If you think about all those hedgerows, you know, most farmers historically and still to this day, when it comes to the time of year to cut your hedge, you know, they'll, they'd flail it to within an inch of its life, uh, both sides and the top. You know, and it still happens. We all we all see it all the time. But one of the one of the things the RSPB thought was, well, what would happen if we didn't do all three sides? You know, the two sides and the top every year. What would happen if we just did one side one year, the top the next year, and then the other side the following on a three year cycle? You know, and you know, obviously the berry harvest increased, which brought in a lot more overwintering birds. You know, thrushes were able to to survive, um, and and their numbers just you know they they skyrocketed. Um, nesting birds, you know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think the farm went from two nesting pairs of white throats when they bought the farm to I think it was 15 or 16 pairs within five years, um, just because there was valuable nesting habitat there. Same with linnets, you know, I think linnets went from three pairs to 27 pairs in five years, um, just because there was good nesting habitat, you know. With some relatively simple techniques. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you know. And the thing with that is, um, it was less work for the farmers and it was, you know, it's cheaper for them because they don't have to burn diesel cutting all three sides of a hedge. You know, they can do it on a three year cycle. Um, yeah, really simple measures. Moves in that area at the moment. Yeah. Why did you do your ML? You've obviously got all sorts of interesting things going on, but you started uh, thinking about working in the outdoors, did you, while you were doing other jobs? How did that come yeah, about? Yeah. So it was when I was still um, still working in gardens um, back in the 1990s, and um, I got into exploring other parts of the of the uplands um, from my sort of childhood days in the Yorkshire Dales. I, I joined my local scout troop, and they through scouts I went off to the Lake District and Snowdonia and the Peak District and did all that kind of stuff, you know. And I stayed involved with the scouts um, up into the 90s. I when I left Scouts myself, back in those days, we had the Venture Scouts, which I think are Explorer Scouts today. Um, and I became a Venture Scout leader. And in the 90s, um, Gore-Tex back then ran a, um, an ML training scheme, mountain leader training scheme, um, via Glenmore Lodge, the National Mountain Centre in Scotland. And every year, I think it was once a year, they picked 12 people to go on their mountain leader training scheme um, at Glenmore Lodge and it was only for people that were working in a, in a voluntary capacity so as a, as a venture scout leader I saw this and I thought well yeah you know I've, I've done quite a bit in the mountains I've, I've been walking for a while I've done a bit of rock climbing um, even then I wasn't thinking of it as a career I just thought well why not apply and see what happens you know so in 1995 I applied and I was one of the lucky 12 that Gore-Tex chose and they sponsored me to do my summer mountain leader training at Glenmore Lodge um, that, that year. And, you know, that all went, went well. I went into the mountain leader training scheme at, at the training stage um, with, with quite a lot of experience. You know, back in those days, you, you'll remember, Mike, we had to keep a paper log book. There was no such thing as D-log as we all use. You know, so it was the good, the good old paper log book, you know. And I think I had, you know, 150 or 200 quality mountain days in my paper log book before I did the training, you know. Um, and at the end of the training course, the debrief, 
Um, they've basically said just crack on and do an assessment as soon as you can. So I booked one for the following year. Um, did that here in the Lake District at Lanehead Outdoor Centre, um, and that kind of started that got, that kick started my career. And I think once I realised that actually you could do something in the mountains, you know, um, it was that that changed things really. So I did the assessment in 1996, and then pretty much straight away started thinking, well, what can I do with this, you know? And the following year, I launched my first business. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So you already done that Hewitt's walk. When did you do that? I did that in 1998, so the year after I started my business. Okay, yeah. um, why? <laughs> um, I was big still. Walk. Sorry, what was that? Big walk. It is a big walk. Yeah. So in '97, I started my business, and you know the the way it tends to work with new mountain leaders, we we see it all the time. Mike is Dale launch their new business these days it's easier because you've got the power of the internet and websites uh, back then there was there was no such thing as the internet um so i launched my business and nothing happened you know i think <laughs> i think i ran a couple of navigation courses and that was about it really and i was still working as a gardener full time and the more time i spent focusing on what I wanted to do in the mountains, the more I grew to hate horticulture and what I was doing as a gardener, which is a shame because I actually do love, you know, gardening still today. Um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do and I, it wasn't the way I wanted to be spending the rest of my life. Um, so I just decided I was going to have my notice in at the, the garden I worked at and go on a big walk. And I thought, well, if nothing else, it'll kind of force my hand. It'll force me to do something about pushing my business. But also if I do something um, that as far as I knew nobody had done before, um, it would help to promote my business, you know? And the idea of doing the Welsh Hewitts came up, you know? I just thought, well, as far as I know, nobody has completed the Welsh Hewitts in one walk, you know? Um, it was also, probably driven by the fact that I didn't actually know all the mountain areas of Wales that well before I set off you know so I'd done a little bit on in the Snowdon Range and the Glitheri and the Canedai but I didn't really know anywhere else in Wales whereas looking at the English Hewitts I'd, I'd sort of done most of it before really so I thought well let's go somewhere I don't know so it is a proper adventure you know and that's um you know that walk took two months I did that in 1998 um, I think it was June, June, July, or maybe May, June. I can't remember. Um, and you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't intended to be a, a record-breaking feat or anything like that. It was just me going for a walk and enjoying it, you know. And started down in the south, down in the Brecon Beacons over in the Minithi, and walked over Brecon Beacons into the Black Mountains, and then up through Mid Wales, um, you know, ticking off the hills in the, the Radnor Forest, and then Plenlimon and working north. And two months later, I kind of finished on Taliban. Yeah, it's a heck of a journey, that, Graham. Well done. Because, um, yeah, it's a long way between some of those areas as well, isn't it? And Yeah, yeah. Trekking across some of the Cambrian mountains on your own is quite a lonely business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it was, you know, it was pretty rough, really, you know. Um, I, I remember it was a particularly wet year, you know. Um, yeah, so I, re I remember being, you know, quite wet most of the time. Um, I, I camped pretty much every night. I had a couple of nights in hostels and I think the odd night in a B&B, &B, but most of the time it was camping. 
Um, looking back, it was a great experience. I'd actually, I'd do it again, like a shot, you know. <laughs> so yeah, the bike might feel a bit heavy these days. <laughs> yeah, I think it would. <laughs> Did, and that led to a book, didn't it? I've got the book somewhere. I was just looking for it. I thought it'd be here, but I can't see yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I had the idea. I thought, well, you know, one way of promoting what I do would be to write a book about it. Yeah. And it was it was just a small um, local publisher based down actually on the Welsh borders down in Herefordshire. Um, and it, it was funny because, you know, I was quite obviously I was really proud of the book when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um Looking back now, I think, you know, it could have been written better. It was a first attempt at writing a book. I just bashed it out, you know, without any disrespect to the publishers. It wasn't really edited, neither. They kind of just published it as it was, you know. Um, it'd be quite nice, actually, to, to sort of, you know, write a book on the Hewitt again, you know, and, and make a proper job of it. <laughs> well, I think you did a great job. It's a book of its time, isn't it, because of the... Uh, the graphics, the illustrations, that sort of thing. So it's very, um, it's very written descriptions. But uh, but but I do like the way you write, Graham. I think you did a good job of that. I quite like the second part of the book actually, where you talk about your journey, and I think that yeah. uh, that would be the bit to revisit. That would be quite interesting. That yeah yeah. But did did that give you the sort of bug for writing books then? Because quite a few guidebooks have followed since then, haven't they? Yeah yeah. I mean I. I've always enjoyed the writing process, you know, as you know, it, it can be a, a bit of a pain at times, um, you know, <laughs> and particularly when the sun's shining and you want to be outside or the snow and you want to be outside and you've got to get on with with writing something. But actually, you know, the whole process is it's a nice process, you know, going from the initial idea to finding a publisher, you know, so I've I've never... Um, written a book first and then tried to find a publisher I've always thought well if this book's worth my spending time writing it I need a publisher for it first so I've always just written by commission Um, so yeah that that whole process trying to find a publisher that initially it was all about finding one that would just publish whatever I whatever I came up with Um, now it's more about trying to find the right publisher for my idea you know so I'm I'm a bit more selective these days (laughs) Uh, but yeah I just look the, yeah, the just love current, the process. The current bestseller is Walking the Wainwrights. You must be quite proud of that one. It's it's a beautifully beautiful book. Yeah, I am really proud of it. I think you know I've, it's been a while since I've written a book. I've had a bit of a layoff from writing, and you know the Walking the Wainwrights kind of came about um, well partly through yourself, Mike. You know we we talked about your nature of Snowdonia and whether there was scope for a similar book on the nature of the Lake District or whether it should just be a chapter within yours, you know. Yeah, um, grass, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit more to it than that. Oh, I know, I know. I'm looking forward <laughs> to seeing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I contacted your publisher by via yeah, an introduction to myself, you know. Um, and then started thinking, well, you know, I actually could write other books for the same publisher um and just came up with the idea of walking the way and rights it, it was you know came about really via covid last year and, and the lockdowns and everything and i thought well you know i can't write the nature of the lake district without getting out into the hills quite a lot more and, and meeting people and that just wasn't possible really you know whereas walking the way and rights you know i i could have written without setting foot out the door i mean I, I did i went out and checked some routes um but you know it was so it was a project to work through 
um, during COVID, really, during lockdowns. And, you know, it seems to have paid off. It's it's getting really good reviews. Um, you know, we're, we're on the, the second print edition at the moment. You know, there's just a, a, new, a new print edition just come through. And I've yet to find anybody that hasn't enjoyed it. So, lovely. <laughs> uh, I like the way it's well, and, and the whole uh, publishing package as well. It's it's really well done, isn't it? But it was something different that took you up to Cumbria this time, wasn't it? You're living in Cumbria now, but you went up there to work on Helvellyn, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So that was in the winter of uh, 2014, 2015. That winter, so. I'd actually lived in Cumbria previously, okay. quite a long time ago. I lived up in the Northern Fells, and then work and other commitments took me to lots of other interesting places around around uh, the UK. And then I was living down in Wales, so I was living just outside of Bala, um, sort of on the on the slopes of Arendvower. I was I was living down there, and um, a job came up as the Felltop Assessor on Helvellyn, and you know I'd been aware of the role of the Felltop Assessors since I was a kid and started walking in the hills myself, you know. And it was something I, I think I'd always kind of thought, that's a pretty cool job, actually. You know, that is a pretty cool job. And when the um, advertisement popped up, I think I saw it on the Mountain Training Association uh, page. And I thought, actually, I know, I know I'm living in Wales and it's not the best place to be living when you're working on Helvellyn, but I'm actually going to go for it. I'll see what happens. Um, filled in the application form. Got, a, got an interview um, and, and a sort of a hill assessment where they, they beasted us up and down Blencather as fast as they could uh, <laughs> um, and was offered the job, you know. So by the end of the day, I had a job as, as felt-top assessor uh, whilst living in just outside of Ballar in Wales, which was <laughs> a, bit, a bit weird, you know. So for that first winter, um, I, I continued to live in Wales. You know, I came up. Uh, every every other week so the felt top assessor role back then there was two of us doing seven days on and seven days off yeah. so I just came up for my seven day shift on Helvellyn and stayed with friends where it was possible to um, book sort of cheap holiday accommodation and that sort of thing yeah. um, so you know made absolutely no money <laughs> but it was a great thing to do for that year and I, I did it for five years you know yeah so is it the dream job when you're doing it? When you, you know, you must get on. Oh God, you know, do I have to go up Helvellyn again today? I've got so many other things I want to do. Yeah, um, I for me it was it was it was a great job. I can't remember many days where I didn't want to go up Helvellyn. Mm. You know, I think the the worst days really um, were those days where there wasn't going to be anything interesting to report. You know, so the, the, the focus of the felt-top assessor job is all about uh, snow conditions, um, writing a very basic kind of avalanche report, if you like, report on um, snow and ice conditions on all the popular paths up, up and down Helvellyn, but also talking to people on the mountain, you know, so it's an educational thing, chatting with people um, about which routes they're taking, you know, trying to, in a non-condescending way talk about the, the footwear they've got on and, and you know the clothing and the fact that there isn't a pub on the summit and all that kind of stuff um you know um so that that's really nice and the the only hard days actually is when it's just rained relentlessly and you know there's going to be no snow up there and you know there's not really going to be many people up there but you've still got to go up and report and say there's still no snow up there it's raining you know they, they were the only days that were hard 
you know. There must have been some days where you didn't go all the way to the top. You just thought, oh, yeah, I know exactly what it's like. I don't need to go. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, a lot of people imagine that you've got to get to the top. And ideally, that, that's obviously the focus of the day is to get up there and take your weather readings. Um, but obviously, the Felltop Assessor role, it's um, managed by the Lake District National Park Authority. And nobody within the National Park Authority is going to insist that you go up a mountain if it's dangerous to go up the mountain. Yeah. And the person that's best placed to make that decision about whether it's safe is you as the felt-up assessor. Yeah. So I, rem I remember one of um, Winter's Day quite early in that first season where the forecast was for it to be pretty blowy. Um, I, think it was, I think it was forecast 60 to 70 miles per hour, gust into 90. And I decided I probably wasn't going to get to the top, but I thought rather than kind of sneak in on the uh, leeward side of the mountain, I'll go up the windward side of the mountain and just see how far I can get. And I, I got quite high up on the plateau and was crawling and then ended up just sort of glissading about 100 metres down the hill to lose height. But before I came down, I took the wind speed and I think it was, it was 86.9 or something like that miles per hour. And the CEO of the National Park Authority, Richard Leaf, um, emailed me that night and said, what on earth are you thinking going up there when you're telling people not to go on the mountain and you went up on the mountain, you know? So I said, well, actually, I didn't think I'd get that high, you know, um, and I just turned around when it was sensible to turn around, you know. And he'd fielded, you know, endless emails and telephone calls, you know, people complaining that I'd, I'd gone too high on the mountain, which was fair enough. You know, it was absolutely fair enough. So it was it was kind of a bit of an eye opener for me that thinking, well, although I'm paid to go up there every day. I don't need to go up there every day. You, know? you do get that media judgment sometimes. As you said, you're the person up there making the decision. And it's very difficult even for you know, anybody else with similar experience to sit in the bottom and go, well, you shouldn't have done that because you don't know. You're not there. You yeah. can only do it when you're actually there, can't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, Grey Mooney Mountaineering has been running for quite a long time now, hasn't it? That's changed over the years, grown and developed, and, and you yeah. seem really busy now. Uh, I've noticed over the last, I don't know, sort of between five and ten years, that a lot of the ML-type work is done by smaller independent providers, such as yourself. There's quite a nice little clutch of them here in Snowdonia, all doing mm. a, a great job, you know, and it's you sort of lived through that shift are you part of that shift you know is it um how do you make things happen how does it make things work these days yeah i mean i think you know i have done it a long time and i think people people know that and people respect that you know that, that's that's my impression anyway and yeah my, my business has it's evolved as you say mike it's changed over the years and my business name has changed quite a few times over the years you know, so I, I started out in 1997 as Wild Ridge Adventure. That was me. And in 2001, the foot and mouth disease kind of put me out of business, you know. Um, you know, and sadly, that foot and mouth disease kind of left me without a business, but also owing quite a lot of money because I was I was offering walking holidays throughout the Scottish Highlands and a lot of a lot of accommodation was paid for. But I felt that. Um, when foot and mouth disease hit, I felt like I needed to pay people back the money that they'd paid. So everybody that had paid me deposits got, got their money back, which left me in quite a lot of debt, really. Um, so, you know, that was the end of Wild Ridge Adventure. And I, I worked as a freelance 
for quite a few years for a couple of Scottish walking holiday companies um, and then started out again um, when I lived in the Shetland Islands. I, I started a walking and wildlife holiday company up there and then moved to Wales. And obviously my business name, Shetland Walking and Wildlife, didn't really work in Wales. So, so I rebranded and became Wild Walks Wales. And then that, that pesky felt-top assessor role brought me up to Cumbria. And I thought, Wild Walks Wales doesn't work in Cumbria either. So I thought, well, I don't know where I'm going to end up living in the future. So I'm not going to name my business based around the place I live. I'm just going to call it Graham Uni Mountaineering as it is, you know. Um, so, yeah, the business itself has evolved. The name has evolved. Um, but also the focus of what I do. So, you know, in those sort of early years of me, working for myself, but also as a freelance, it was mainly about guided walks, you know, whether that was individual day walks or um, holidays, you know, week-long walking holidays, um, usually with a, a bit of a bent towards um, nature tourism as well, wildlife tourism as well, but always about getting up into the hills, um, you know. And then I think over the years, you know, my my business has definitely evolved away from that. I don't do a lot of, of actual guiding anymore, you know. Um, I've just agreed to do a few weeks in um, the Outer Hebrides next year for, for a company as a freelance, and I've not worked as a freelance for years, so that's quite exciting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I've sort of moved away from guiding, um, and I've realised that there are, there are an awful lot of people out there that can do that guiding work. And I think also the... The focus of what people want out of the mountains in lots of respects has changed. I think, you know, with the, it's not the advent of the National Three Peaks or the Yorkshire Three Peaks, because they've always been there. But for most MLs, I think working as a guide, as they like to call themselves, most MLs, that's kind of the bread and butter of, of what they do now, you know. And that kind of work doesn't really interest me, you know. Um, I, I I know there are a lot more, lot more mountains out there that are a lot more interesting than the National Three Peaks, <laughs> you know, the Yorkshire Three Peaks. Um, even on the National Three Peaks and the Yorkshire Three Peaks, you can still have a brilliant day, but it doesn't have to be all about just getting to the summit of the mountain, you know, in as fast a time as possible. Um, so I've kind of evolved the business to be about training those new mountain leaders, really, and hill and moorland leaders and lowland leaders, you know, people that will just want to gain walking awards, really. And I love that. You know, I absolutely love passion on my, my skills. It sounds ideal because you've got clearly a very experienced hill walker yourself and um, clearly a very experienced leader. So it sounds like a perfect place to bring all that together. What changes have you seen over the years you've been doing the business, Graham, both in the, in the business, but perhaps moving on to the hills? So Helvellyn, for example, to go back to Helvellyn, is now managed by the John Muir Trust, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Are you seeing, and, and are you feeling a change? Are you seeing the hills differently to how you may have seen them in the past? What have been the biggest changes over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years you've been doing this? Yeah, I think, I think probably social media has driven a lot of the changes, really. You know, um, you know the sort of Instagram generation, I think, has, has definitely driven a lot of the changes. And I think... Um, Certainly in the Lake District here, it's it's a lot busier than I'd ever known it. So, as I said, I lived in the Lake District previously and then moved away. I lived in 
um, off the west coast of Scotland. I lived in the Shetland Islands. I lived in um, Ross and Cromarty in the Highlands. Then I moved down to Wales and lived in Snowdonia. And then came back to the Lake District after quite a period. And it was a bit of a shock, really. You know, it was a shock to, to realise just how busy it's got here. And, you know, in, in lots of respects, that's a good thing, isn't it? You know, in lots of respects, we want people to get out into the hills and we want them to enjoy um, whether it's just hill walking or whether they've got an interest in geology or, or bird life or whatever. You know, it's all good um, as long as they're kind of doing it responsibly. Um, so there's, there's changes in that respect in that there are a lot more people here. You know, in the Lake District at the moment, we I, I think we have a serious problem with the infrastructure is not really geared to the number of tourists that we have coming in. Um, but I don't blame the tourists for that. I don't really blame anybody. It's just the way it is. But something needs to change. You know, there's got to be a change. And I definitely, I don't think we want to be trying to limit the number of people that come here. I think, you know, we maybe just need to look at ways that we can um, bring them here, but without everybody coming in their own car and trying to find somewhere to park for free. And, you know, um, and that applies to, to me as well as anybody else. You know, I think all of us need to change the way that we access the hills, really. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think I saw a post on Facebook this morning from some guy that had been to a, a bothy just near where I live, um, Mostale Cottage at the head of Swindale. And he was um, two days bike packing around the lakes with his mate over the weekend over this snowy weekend we've just had and he got to the bothy and there was 15 other people there wow. and he, yeah you know and you think it's it's a fairly big bothy but actually we've had pretty horrendous weather this weekend you know um this this is recorded at the end of november and we, we've had big storms over the weekend with lots of snow so there were 17 people in that bothy overnight you know and that's normal at this time of year now you know it's actually really busy all the time Yes, bothies have been uh, highlighted a lot more, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're surely you're not helping by writing books like Walking the Wainwrights. I agree, absolutely. You know, um, as, as I've said, you know, I don't think the answer is to try to stop people coming. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I want people to come into the, into the uplands. I, I wish we could all of us try to think of ways that we can encourage them to spread out a little bit. You know, the honeypot areas are very, very busy. Um, and if, if only we could get people to go into the North Pennines or, you know, to the Yorkshire Dales or the Cheviots or the Scottish Southern Uplands or, you know, the Dumfries and Galloway, there's loads of places out there. Um, and people in the know go to those places because they now know that they're the quiet places. Um, and, you know, the hills should be for everyone, I think. Um, but we just need to try to encourage people to, to realise that there's, there's more to it than Snowdon or Mount Snowdon, you know, and, and Mount Helvellyn, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I do think there's a lot of people who go to Snowdon and Helvellyn who wouldn't go anywhere else. So yeah. I do think, yeah. like you say, the infrastructure really needs looking at for those very popular peaks and trying to spread those people around is, is uh, sort of next level, really. Yeah, yeah. But what about the hills themselves? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, we're much more aware of the, the lack of nature and the lack of biodiversity in our hills these days. Have you seen much change 
there and, and how would you feel things are in the Lake District at the moment? You know, it's famously been called sheep wrecks, but you know, we also read about the passion for the Herdwick and the traditions and culture of the hill farmers. You know, how, how do you feel about that area? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, in lots of ways, I feel really positive about what's happening in the Lake District now. You know, there is a real push towards, um, you know, rewilding as a as a greater entity throughout not just the Lake District, but throughout all of our mountain areas. And we're definitely seeing that here in the Lake District. I'm, I'm fortunate. I live in uh, Mardale at the foot of Horswater, and I live right at the heart of um, the RSPB's rewilding project, you know, so I'm surrounded by that, uh, which is just, it's amazing. You know, there's yeah, a lot of really, really good work going on here. Um, you know, the RSPB uh, um, have already reduced grazing pressures on, on their hills within their estates. Um, but not only that is, you know, they've, they've got a tree nursery, so they're reintroducing, you know, downy willows and all sorts onto the crags. Um, not just on their estate, but also on Helvellyn and other areas, you know. Um, there's a lot of really interesting work going on. And it's the same in Ennerdale. I mean, I'm, I'm less familiar with what's going on in Ennerdale because that's the far end of the Lake District from me and I'm oh, surrounded wow. by a, a rewilding project here. Um, and it's not unique to these two areas neither, you know. There's, there's um, you know, really good stuff happening. It has been happening with the Border Forest Trust around the Moffat area. You know, really exciting stuff going on up there as well. Um, throughout Scotland, there's, there's a lot of rewilding projects. I think it was first driven by sort of Trees for Life, that organisation. Um, and the things that they're doing up there is really exciting. So I think, you know, things are changing. Um, I think not, nobody really knows what stage we're trying to go back to. You know, I think that's some, something we're all working at, really. You know, that, that's, that's a bit of an issue. Um, you know, are we trying to make the hills as they were when we were younger? Or are we trying to make them as they were 300 years ago or 500 years ago? And then you start thinking about, you know, wolf reintroductions and lynx reintroductions and all that kind of stuff, you know. So there's a lot of interesting discussion going on, but it's not just discussion. You know, things are actually happening. Um, you know, we've got we've got a beaver reintroduction just in the valley that I live in here, which is really exciting, you know. Um, so th there's a lot happening, really. Um, and I, I think all that's positive. And the more I read about what's happening, uh, the more I'm aware that other folk are aware that it's happening as well. You know, even people who we wouldn't necessarily think of as, as hill, hill folk, hill people, are actually aware of it and it's amazing some of the conversations you have with people about what's happening in the hills um, so you know I, I see all of that as a really positive thing uh, we've just got to keep keep pushing keep doing it you know? <laughs> and if we just come back to mountain leaders mountain leader trainees what advice would you have for people who want to become mountain leaders in this day and age because as you say that the the job of being a mountain leader has changed quite a bit over the years hasn't it what, yeah. what would you point them towards these days yeah uh, it's a tough one because you know i think essentially they you know we want them to be hill walkers before they come into the scheme and um, yeah. that's that's the ideal and they should be you know the, the mountain leader training um week isn't for beginner walkers it's for those who already have done some um so it's about kind of nurturing their interests already really and you know, helping them to understand that it isn't all about the Yorkshire Three Peaks or the Welsh 3000s or whatever. 
you know. And I, I see map leader trainees regularly who have, you know, a vast amount of interest and knowledge in the uplands of the UK. But I also see quite a lot that have only ever done the Yorkshire Three Peaks or the, you know, the, the Welsh Three Peaks or whatever. And they they kind of don't know that there are other things out there you can do in the hills and there are a lot more hills out there, you know. So I think, you know, that's that's one of the things really that um, I like to to really focus on as part of my my role as a trainer of mountain leaders, you know, is, is really encouraging the exploration of other mountains within the UK and just getting people to, to understand that it's about respecting the mountains. You know, it's, it's all about, you don't have to be an expert on, on everything in the hills because none of us are, you know. It's just about understanding that the mountains do deserve some respect. You know, even simple things like trying to learn how to pronounce some of those funny Welsh names and Gaelic names, you know, or even just trying to understand what those names might mean. You know, that's part of developing that respect for the mountains, you know. Um, and thinking about the bigger picture, you know, thinking about our impact on the environment as mountain leaders, you know, we're taking groups into the mountains and that's got to have an impact and it does, you know. Um, so thinking about that, you know, and, and all of that really, it's, it's sort of, you know, people come on the mountain leader training course. And I think for most of them, those discussions are a sort of a new aspect of what they're doing in the hills. And then by the end of that mountain leader training week, they go away with a lot of questions in their heads, or I hope they do, you know, I hope they go away with asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And of course, we should mention lowland leaders and hill and moorland leaders. Yeah. Two associations I would certainly like to see grow a lot more. I think there's a big argument for the hill and moorland leader for people who are not too keen on doing the expeditions, don't particularly want to go into steep ground. Most of the hills in England and Wales, um, and a good number in Scotland, could quite happily be covered by the Hill and Moorland leader. And uh, it's a nice, nice stage in the journey for them, isn't it? Graham, I think we'll finish there. Unless there's anything else you want to particularly add? I don't think so, Michael, other than thanks for the opportunity, really. So thank you very much to Graham Mooney for joining us this morning. You can find out more about Graham at his website, Graham Mooney Mountaineering. Pop over there and have a look for yourself. And so for me, that's uh, goodbye and thank you for listening. Cheers, Mike.